Good afternoon. Uh, welcome to Bible Quest Wednesday edition. I am Jeff Smelser, and uh, I am joined today by Chase Byers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Good afternoon, Chase. Afternoon, Jeff. Good to see you. We are we are not seeing Joe Works, who's usually here with us on Wednesday afternoons, but he is unavailable today. So Chase and I are going to kind of flounder our way through chapters 14 and 15, and next week Joe can tell us what we did wrong. Yes, I know Joe's a humble guy, so he would have never said it on the air. But Joe is actually re really talented when it comes to the book of Revelation. He's a good Bible student, so yeah. we'll miss his input today. Very much. As a matter of fact, truth be told, I was kind of relying on Joe's guidance through chapters 14 and 15 today. And uh, found out just uh, shortly before the webcast he's not available today. Uh, so um, we will do our best, or we'll do something anyway. Um, Revelation chapter 14. So Chase, let's uh, back up just a bit and just how did we get here? Let's not take too long with the review, but let's just, again, how did we get here? First chapter of the book of Revelation opens with John. Um, he's on the island of Patmos. He sees the Lord. The Lord tells him to write to these seven churches of Asia. Uh, the island he's on is just off the coast of Asia, Asia being the western part of Turkey in the first century. It was Roman province. He, in chapters uh, three and four, or rather chapters two and three, we see the Lord's messages sent to those seven churches. And there's basically a discussion of their present condition, the things that are in the language of chapter one, as Jesus said, write the things that are and then the things that are to come to pass hereafter. Chapters two and three you have the condition of those seven churches. And they're all, well, five of the seven are told they need to repent. They're all going through tribulation. Um, and John's enduring that with them. So then we get to chapter four and, and there's the beginning of the picture of the things that are hereafter. What do we see starting in chapter four? So John gets to take a look up into heaven and he sees these this throne that had 24 thrones around it and the 24 elders that are there. But more than that, chapter four is trying to point at who is there. Uh, God is there and Christ is son. And uh, there are these four living creatures that are there that are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And living creatures are giving glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and to him who lives forever and ever. And so it first calls attention to the glory and the greatness of God and Christ. But then in chapter five, John finds that there's this book that he wants to see opened up and there's seven seals on it. And this angel is saying, you know, who's worthy to open up the book and to break the seals of this book. And there was no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth who's able to do it. And so John starts weeping and the elder tells him to stop weeping, uh, weeping because there's a lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who's overcome is to open up the book and the seven seals. And so the next chapter uh, kind of begins those breaking of the seals yeah. and what those represent. And if you just to sum up in general, what do we see as the seals one by one are removed and you can see a little bit that's written on this book or this scroll, how would you sum up what we see? That's a really good question. I don't, I don't even know what word I would use. But I think there's... I'd use the word judgment. I would say God's judgment upon those who dwell on the earth. I, I was going to say hope and greatness uh, for those that are having to suffer but are righteous. Uh, yeah, because God is going to bring judgment upon their persecutors. Um, and you know, Chase, it, there's an interesting thing here. This picture, of it, before he sees the scroll and before he sees the scroll being opened, 
this picture in, in chapter four of God on his throne, as you said, he, he looks into the heavens, he sees God on his throne. It's a picture that's similar to one that Ezekiel saw of God in Ezekiel one. There's some similarity to what Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter six when he saw God. And um, there's a word that we could use if we wanted to, a theophany. That would yep. be a word that would be like a, a divine appearance of God in glory of some sort. Um, in fact, the expression, the glory of the Lord is used in Ezekiel and actually in a number of places in the Old Testament where it doesn't give us a description of what it looked like. It just says the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, for example, when it was built or came into the temple when Solomon built it. But where we have these descriptions, these descriptions of the awesomeness of the likeness of the glory of the Lord in Ezekiel 1 and Isaiah 6 and now here in Revelation, it's interesting that in all three of those places, it it is a precursor to an announcement of God's judgment upon somebody. And the prophet, whether it be Isaiah or Ezekiel or John, has the burden of delivering this message of God's judgment. And God's judgment is always deliverance for the righteous, but judgment for the wicked. And so we see this idea of bitter and sweet, of, a, of eating a scroll that tastes good, but it makes your belly bitter. Um, Ezekiel was announcing God's judgment upon Judah. Um, Isaiah was going to be sent to a people who would not listen and announce God's judgment was going to come. And, and here John is about to describe these judgments that are going to come on those who dwell on the earth. I, I had just not thought about that. You know, the consistency of God's glory being revealed before the judgment scenes mm. are, are taken out. But I think there's something to learn from that, that once you are face to face with God's glory, his greatness and understanding his holy nature, and until you wrap your head around that, you're going to have a, a hard time wrapping your head around the judgments that God is bearing out. Yeah. And so as John, Ezekiel, and Isaiah are hearing these judgments, it's kind of put into perspective now that they've seen the glory of God. And, you know, I was just having a Bible study yesterday where someone was asking similarly, uh, we were going through the, uh, the Genesis account and looking at the flood of Noah. And they said, well, what about all those children and all those women that, you know, had no sin? Um, specifically, the children is, is what this individual had in mind. What about them? Where, how is that right or just of God to take their lives um, and spare Noah? It's a good question. I think it's one we wrestle with throughout all of the Bible in times of war and stuff like that, where God will wipe out entire cities. But what we have to remember is in those judgment scenes like the flood or in what we're talking about in Revelation, God sees the bigger picture. He is so great and glorious. And when we're overwhelmed by his glory and his sovereign nature, uh, I think it puts into perspective the judgments that he hands out. Yeah. So, okay. So we have this, um, these seven seals that are opened. And as they're opened, it builds to a climax. And finally, mm -hmm. there's the victory and salvation. And God's people are victorious. And of course, in the in chapters two and three as the seven churches were addressed they were told if you'll overcome then you're going to receive the reward and you get to the end of chapter 11 and boom we're there then we then we started over in chapter 12 we backed up and john sees a vision of this woman who is the people of god bringing into the world the messiah and and the dragon waiting to devour the messiah of course he fails in that the messiah is caught up to god jesus ascends to the throne and then the dragon goes to make war with the saints, with God's people. And uh, he, he 
gives his um, uses the, the this beast that represents the Roman Empire um, to exert his influence. There's another beast that would represent, as we discussed it, the cult of Caesar that established these places of worship of the Caesars. I, I would categorize that as just false religion. Yeah, it, it is. But but again, keeping in mind that we are looking at something that is addressed to seven particular... Chase, did you know this? I'm not sure if we talked about this. In, in Asia, now when we say Asia, we're talking about this Western province of, of Turkey. We're not about talking about China Turkey. and Russia and all that. We're talking about this... Not, not just, what, did you say Asia Minor? What'd you no, say? I said, I said modern day Turkey. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just the Western part of modern day Turkey. But there were these temples to the various emperors that were built and they weren't built all over the Roman Empire. There were 37 of them that we know about that were built. 37 cities that w took on the, the title of a temple guardian. Uh, and they had a temple to one of the emperors. Um, there were only, I've got to remember the numbers now, um, there were only seven of those if, oh, let me, let me, hang on here. Let me pull up a, a, a PowerPoint here real quickly here if I can. So, we, just, as it, just as it relates, we're talking about the second beast from the earth um, at the end of chapter 13. And you're talking about what it's possible that that beast was just from the time of Asia. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and so um, here we go, right here. That's the slide that I want. Okay, come on, please work computer. Please work computer. That's okay, but I mean, while Jeff is pulling that up, just the point he's making is, you know, th th there are specific things that we can nail these things down as to what they are. And that kind of makes the book less mysterious, you know, that like it, it helps us understand that these people would have understood what John was seeing, and what it meant to them in that day. Yeah. All right. I, here we go. Okay. Good deal. I think I've got it now. Yeah. I hope this shows up. Can you see that? Is it full I screen? Can. All right. Yep. All right. So th there's the island of Patmos, and there are the seven churches that are addressed in chapters two and three. Um, and that's the order in which they're addressed. Well, it turns out that there were these 37 cities designated as, as temple guardians. So the Greek word is neochorus. That's the word chase that's used in Acts 19 when there's the riot at Ephesus and the uh -huh. council member or the, or the town official comes out and says, you know, we know that Ephesus is the temple guardian of Artemis. Artemis Diana. Yeah. They had a temple of Artemis there in Ephesus. Well, that was a temple guardian of this pagan deity Artemis. But later on in Ephesus, they also became a temple guardian of a Roman emperor. So now this Roman emperor uh, is worshipped as, as a deity. And there were 37 such cities in, in, the, in ancient times. 31 of them were in Asia Minor. Now, when we wow. say Asia Minor, that's bigger than Asia. That includes mm -hmm. this whole peninsula. But 14 of them were in Asia. 14 of the 37 total were in this province of Asia, which is just this area right in here. And only seven existed in the first century. And of those seven, four were in Asia. Um, so we're talking about in the, how many existed in the first century. This was a new thing as of 29 BC. 
29 BC was when the first one was built and Pergamon, Pergamum or Pergamus was designated a temple guardian. Uh, it had a temple to Augustus. But in the first century, there were a total of seven that existed. And of those seven, four were in Asia and they were Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and Miletus. Notice that three of the four that existed in the first century that were in Asia are the, the first three cities to whom these messages are addressed. The others were Nicomedia in Bithynia, Ankara in Galatia, and Perga in Pamphylia. So you see Nicomedia up here, um, Ankara in, in Galatia's over here, and then Perga in Pamphylia. Besides Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamus, which were temple guardians in the first century, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea would also become Neocoroi, uh, temple guardians, having a temple to some Roman emperor. Sardis in the second century, Philadelphia early third century, and Laodicea in the second century. So the point of all of that is, it wasn't all over the Roman Empire that this happened. It was particularly, in, especially in Asia Minor, 31 of the 37 were in Asia Minor, especially in Asia, which is more specific, and in the first century, there were only seven, and four of those were in Asia. Three are among the seven churches that John writes to, and of the seven churches that John writes to, six of them would eventually become temple guardians. And what were these temple guardians? They were hosts of the worship of a Roman emperor. So yeah, I think you're right. Ultimately, there's application to false religion generally, but I would say the occasion in the book of Revelation that we're talking about is the enforcement of the worship of these Roman emperors in chapter 13. Yeah. And again, that just makes it real, but uh, not at all to say that there's not, you know, even application to us as we think about persecution and, and false religion being a, a huge um, temptation for many in the church. Absolutely. And, and so that's the lesson that we're going to take away. Yes, we're reading about something they were going through and they were being told they had to overcome it. But the lesson is when we face similar pressures, we have to overcome, we can't compromise. And we're reading Revelation in that way, the same way we would First Corinthians. You know, mm -hmm. we realize in First Corinthians 5 that Paul isn't writing to us saying, there's someone in your church who's sleeping with his father's wife, but there's still applications that we take away from that. We understand it in their context and then we apply it to ours. So, so when Revelation 13 then talks about how this second beast, the, the religious structure of enforcing the worship of the emperors, is causing people to have this mark on their forehead and their hands or else they can't buy and sell the application to us today is you may have to make a choice uh in your employment in what company you work for or or uh or you'll lose your job if you don't compromise well you're going to have to make that choice and say you know what i'm not going to compromise even if it inhibits my ability to buy and sell Yes. Uh, so many people, they prioritize their material well-being and they say, well, I have to have a job. I have to do this. I have to do that. And so I'll compromise. Well, the book of Revelation is about not compromising. That's exactly right. Yeah. All right. Well, you know what? I said, let's just do a quick review to get us up to speed. And we spent 15 minutes reviewing. Uh, let's come to chapter 14, Chase. Okay. Let's, uh, you want to read the first five verses here? I'll, I can read that for us. Okay. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. 
And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. We've seen that number 144,000 before, haven't we? We sure have. And we talked about it then, and we'll talk about it now, that I don't believe this is a literal 144,000 uh, individuals that are only going to be the ones that are saved, or in this case, be the ones that get to sing that song uh, that's mm -hmm. being talked about. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the whole context is speaking in, um, I don't know if we want to use the word metaphor, but the idea of, of generalities, right, uh, to help us understand something larger. Yeah. So, um, and it, back in, in Revelation chapter uh, 7, mm -hmm. where, we, where we were introduced to the concept of 144,000, it was the people of God who were going to be sealed, protected, marked as God's people and, and sealed so that they would be spared just before the culmination of, of that series of judgments. Six seals on the scroll had been removed and various judgments revealed. Then there's this pause to protect God's people before the angels at the four corners of the earth release the winds. They're going to wreak havoc and bring destruction. And, and then after God's people, the 144,000, are sealed, then the judgment comes and, and the victory is said to belong to the kingdom of God. But now we're backing up and we're looking at this again and again we encounter the 144,000. And somebody, I thought maybe it was you, but you and I talked about it before we started the broadcast today. So it was maybe Joe who made the observation. Here they're described as men who are virgins. They've not been defiled with women. Well, I think that's pretty clear that that's just a figure for being pure, uh, not being guilty of sexual sin. Sexual sin is such a uh, a stand-in for sin generally. It's following your own lust, your own desires. Obviously, this is not literal, else the people of God are just male virgins. Uh, doesn't include women, doesn't include married people. Um, and, and obviously, that's not the point. So yeah. just as this is figurative, the number itself also is figurative. It represents God's people on the earth. Yeah, what were you going to say? It might even be silly of me to mention this, but I don't even know if I thought of them in verse four as having been virgins. I mean, it doesn't use the word virgin. Someone can not defile themselves with women and keep themselves chaste while also being married. Yeah, yours says um, they they are chaste. Mine says they are virgins. Okay, thank standard. you. Right, As a matter of fact, let you know what? Let me just check something real quick. Um, yeah. Do, do you see my point, though? It's just yeah. that, you know, you can you can be pure as a married man. Right. You, you sure. Sure. You can. And um, so I'm going to I'm going to flip over here and look at the Greek text in uh, Revelation chapter 14. You'll, you'll, be, four. you'll be embarrassed in me, Jeff. I'm trying to recall the Greek word for virgin. And I'm Parthenos or Parthenos. Yes. Thank you. Uh, Parthenos. Yeah. yeah. So and this is that word. OK, excellent. Thank you. Uh, and and interestingly, and interestingly, of course, here is talking about men, but it's it's the word that's used of Mary, who was a virgin. Yep. Uh, probably Matthew used in person. probably used in First Corinthians seven as well. Then. Now he, there there is there is this there are uh, an instance or two in ancient Greek literature where this word is used of somebody who was not without sexual experience. Um, so technically. 
it can be used of somebody who is, as you said, chaste. And, and so as a married man, uh, you and I are both married. We live chaste lives. We conduct our, that doesn't mean we're celibate, uh, but, but it means that we adhere to the principles of God's word as far as sexuality is concerned. Absolutely. Uh, usually when this word is used, it is talking about somebody who has no sexual experience. Um, either way, either way, it's clear that the point here is this is a meta to use your word. I don't know if metaphor is the word, the right word or not. There may be another word for this particular figure of speech, yeah. but it's a stand in for being pure generally. Yes. And I mean, the application, as we think about it, these are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the lamb and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. These are pure men and women. You know, this is, this is who we're striving to be as well. Yeah. Good. All right. Let's go to verse six. I'll read verses six and seven and then you elucidate. Well, first, I have to, turn my first, phone I have off. to first, I have to look up what elucidate means. Yeah. Well, let me turn my phone off here. Okay. Uh, and my Bible fell closed when I reached for my phone. So, how about you read? <laughs> how about you read verse, for us? Yeah, verse six and seven. And I saw another angel flying in mid heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, and to every nation and to tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, "Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heaven and the earth." and the sea and the springs of water. So we're going to see uh, three angels brought up in this section. This is the first, and he's flying in mid-heaven. I don't know exactly where that is, but it's in mid-heaven. Yeah. And he's preaching this eternal gospel to those who live on the earth. So and the thing that I want to notice here is it says the hour of his judgment has come. Now, remember, when we went through the first 11 chapters, there were seven seals being removed and the scroll was being opened and we saw judgments being unleashed and building to a culmination. And we got to that culmination in chapter 11 and the judgment was realized. In fact, in chapter 10, it said there will be delay no longer. Here comes the judgment. And then the victory was there and the kingdom of God prevailed. But then remember, we started over in chapter 12 and we backed all the way up to before the Messiah is even born, before the Christ is born, and, and we start working our way forward again. So now we're, we're getting back up toward where we'd already gotten in the first half of the book of Revelation. Now we're again looking forward to that judgment that's about to come. And so what I'm saying here is it seems like in Revelation we go through this scenario twice. We see the the anticipation of the judgment and then the judgment is realized in chapter 11 and then starting in chapter 12 we start over and you see the anticipation of this judgment coming and that's where we are here in chapter 14 in chapter 13 it described the persecution of God's people and now here we are the hour has come for this judgment it's it's soon to be chase remember how the book started the book started about things soon to to take place yeah, the time is at hand yeah all right so um, let's take this on down. Let's go eight through 12. You want to go that far? Yeah, sure. And another angel, a second one followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Then another angel, a third one followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine, uh, excuse me, drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. 
and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of his holy angels and in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever they have no rest day and night those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name here is the preser perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of god and their faith in jesus yeah so um I guess one of the things we want to talk about is this reference to Babylon in yes. verse 8. Uh, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great that hath made all the nations to drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So that's, that's one of those names that it's good to know as a New Testament Bible student, just because it comes up in other places, um, not only in the New Testament, but obviously in the Old Testament as well. And so is it fair to say Babylon kind of represents an enemy of God's people? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, just in general, I mean, they were the ones that came in and took God's people um, captive uh, back in the Old Testament. And so this is maybe a, another way to talk about Rome. Is that possible? Yeah, I think so. And it kind of makes sense. Who is Jesus said to be the son of? He's the son of David, right? Mm -hmm. Why David? David was the beginning of the line of kings uh, that culminates in Jesus. Just as surely as you've got a line of kings beginning with David and culminating in Jesus so that David can stand for Jesus. In fact, there are a couple of passages in the Old Testament where it prophesies about a David who is to come and it's talking about the Christ, the Messiah. So also there's a line of kingdoms that starts with Babylon and culminates in Rome. That's what you see in Daniel 2 and in Daniel 7 and Daniel 2. You see that image that Nebuchadnezzar sets up and it represents four kingdoms, Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, and then Rome. And in Daniel 7, you see the four beasts that represent Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And we've already seen in the book of Revelation, uh, especially when we were in chapter 13, the tie-ins between Revelation and Daniel, especially Daniel mm -hmm. 7. And so, so the beginning of that series of empires, Babylon culminating in Rome, uh, so that's one reason it makes sense to use Babylon as a standard for Rome and not to mention the captivity that you talked about. Is it also the case, it's likely what Peter's doing at the end of 1 Peter 5, uh, she who was in Babylon chosen to go to you, send you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Just again, another reference to Rome. I think so. I yeah. think very much so. Um, I, I don't think it makes sense to understand uh, Peter to refer, be referring to literal Babylon as, as in the first centuries, right? The, the, she that is in Babylon sends word to you. But if you look at whom to whom Peter's writing in First Peter, right. uh, he's writing to the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. That's all in Asia Minor. Yeah, uh, a little bit larger than the area John's writing to. Mm -hmm. yeah, book of Revelation, and he's, and and um, there's tradition. I know a lot of brethren balk at this, but there's tradition that Peter ended up in Rome. It also mentions Mark, who we have reason to believe was in, in Rome. And so she that is in Babylon is the church in Babylon in 1 Peter 5. And here in, in Revelation 14, I think it's pretty clear it represents Rome, which fits the first half of the book of Revelation, right? Yes, absolutely. What does it mean that um, that uh, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great that hath made all the nations to drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Babylon has made nations to drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. What is that? Somebody would call that uh, a word salad, I guess, but it's not without meaning. It means something. What does it mean? That's interesting. So mine says, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion 
of her immorality. Interesting. So I guess I would have taken that to mean her influence, what, what influence she had on the other nations, yeah. um, what she was forcing them to do and to turn to. Yeah. So if you can imagine a world in which there is this great power such that nations all over the world are dependent, their economies are dependent upon ties to this centralized power. And so they go along with this centralized power, even to the point that they worship the emperors of this centralized power. So they are basically, they are committing spiritual fornication. They are like the Old Testament Israelites who when they would go off and worship idols, they were committing adultery. Uh, the nations of the earth are committing fornication with Rome because they get benefits from Rome. And uh, so you think again of those cities building these temples in honor of the Roman emperors. But today, today, in the world today, there is a nation that for decades has been very powerful and various nations have benefited economically from ties to this particular powerful nation. And uh, therefore, they've gone along with things. They have, they have embraced immoral stances, whether it be abortion or homosexual rights or whatever. Uh, they've embraced all of that as they have endeared themselves to the nation on whom they're economically dependent. What, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying that everything about the United States of America is bad. You know, I, I enjoy living in the United States of America. Um, I think I would enjoy living other places as well. But there's some great things about this country. But the fact is, you think about the influence of Hollywood throughout the world, and it has not been a positive influence. Uh, it, and the only thing that's coming to my mind with this, like this is kind of the old way of saying they made everyone drink the Kool-Aid. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. Do you know where that expression comes from? I think so, but if I'm wrong, I don't want to say it on air. Jim Jones and Guy. Guy okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, all okay. right. Good. All right. Okay. Um, so let's start in verse nine. You know what we're doing a good job of? Slowing down so that Joe can get to chapter fifteen for us. That's right. That's what we're doing a good job of today. <laughs> okay. I didn't really mean. I meant for us to move at the same pace, but. Uh, but anyway, let's give it a go here. Let's so, go. So anything you want to talk about in verses 9 through 12? Yeah, well, yeah. So here's this third angel, third of um, three that we've been talking about. And this uh, third one kind of brings back the idea of those that worship the beast in his image, receiving the mark on his forehead. But it says in verse 11 that, that there's going to be the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast in his image. Um that's kind of a, a big picture New Testament and Old Testament idea, the idea of not having rest. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's packed into one little verse here in Revelation. And when you get into verse 13, it says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, this is spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. The contrast is these people who die in the Lord have rest from their deeds yeah. mm -hmm. those who've went along and, and have this um mark of the beast on their forehead they have no rest yeah. they're they're miserable i want to make another connection back in chapter 13 when it introduced the idea of the mark of the beast that people would have on their head and their forehead it, it was saying 
what's going to happen is if you don't have the mark of the beast, you're not going to be able to buy and sell. And I'm going to go back to chapter 13 in sure. verse 16. He causes all the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free and the bond that there be given them a mark on their right hand or upon their forehead and that no man should be able to buy or to sell save he that hath the mark, even the name of the beast or the number of his name. The one that's causing the people to have this beast is this, to have this mark is this um, earth beast, the beast that's enforcing the worship of the first beast, which would be Rome, the Roman emperors. And so the second beast that's enforcing that, I think that was this cult of Caesar priests um, in these various cities that were temple guardians. But they were basically uh, imposing something on the on the societies that you got to go along with this, and if you don't, you're you're not going to be able to do business in this town. But here in chapter 14, so that's if you don't have the mark. But here in chapter 14, what's being said, if you do have the mark, you're going to share in the punishment that God is going to bring upon the beast. So you you've got a choice. You could go, oh. If I don't have the mark, I won't be able to bear, bear, buy or sell. Uh, but if I do have the mark, I'm going to be punished along with the the beast when God brings judgment upon it. And so it's really you take you you deciding whether you're on God's side or not. That's what you're doing. Yep, exactly. Okay, let's come down to chapter 13 and go through verse 16. So in verse 14, it says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap for you, uh, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. Um, it, yeah. Is this the first time we've seen Son of Man used in Revelation, or am I off on that? Uh, go back to Revelation chapter 1. Is it in chapter 1? I'm trying to remember. Because um, I, I know, and that would make sense if it was in chapter 1, uh, simply because that is a phrase used a lot in Ezekiel, and we got a lot of Ezekiel. Yeah, um, there it is, verse 13. Thank in you. the midst of the candlesticks, or in the midst of the lampstands, was one like unto a Son of Man. Excellent. And in that case, it's clear to me that it's Jesus. You mentioned Ezekiel. So Ezekiel's called a son of man. Mm -hmm. But in Daniel 7, the phrase son of man is used for the one who comes before the throne of God and he is given the kingdom. Daniel 7 is, is that chapter where Daniel sees this vision of these four beasts that represent Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And, and God sits on his throne to render judgment upon them. And he takes the kingdoms away from them. And one like a son of man comes before the throne and God gives the kingdom to him. And well, obviously, if he gets the kingdom, he's the king. He is the Messiah, the anointed one. And so obviously there, son of man refers to the coming Messiah. And, and I really believe that's what lies behind the expression that Jesus uses so often of himself, the Son of Man. He's not just saying, I'm a human. He's calling attention to the connection between himself and what was foreseen in Daniel 7. In Revelation 1, when it says, one like unto a Son of Man, it's clear that it's Jesus. He goes ahead and he says, I was dead and I'm alive. That's down in chapter 1 and verse 18. So it's the one who's been raised from the dead. I don't know for sure in chapter 14 when it says, one sitting like unto a son of man. I don't mean if it, I don't know if it just means John saw somebody who looked like a human 
in appearance or if he's specifically calling attention to the Christ. It's interesting, I guess the question arises because the one like unto a son of man is instructed by the by the angel in the next verse to send forth his sickle. And somehow that doesn't sound like um, that doesn't sound like um, Jesus to me, being instructed by another angel to send forth his sickle. What do you think? Did I read yeah, that wrong? I don't know because uh yeah, my, my just, I mean, you, you hear Jesus call himself son of man so many times, you you just want to assume that it's him. And it is interesting that this is the only, I looked it up in the New American Standard Bible, the only two times son of man is used in Revelation is chapter one and right here. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it was another angel that comes out and tells him. Oh, it's interesting, though, that the New American Standard Bible capitalizes the H in him in verse 15. So they're assuming that it's okay. Uh, All right. that it's Jesus. But regardless, someone is is harvesting what God has put out there, right? So, that, that's, that's the idea. And you see that in other areas of the Bible. So let's go back and just take a look at this idea of harvesting just a little bit. Um, and, and one passage that comes to mind is, is Matthew chapter 21. And here there's this parable of um, the, uh, uh, you know what, uh, actually, let's go to Matthew 13. I think that's the better one. Matthew 13. This is the parable of the tares that have been sown mm. in, the, in the guy's field. And the devil sowed them. He had wheat growing and, and somebody came and sowed uh, weeds in his field. So they've grown up amidst the wheat. And when... When they realize it, when the servants of this landowner realize it, they say, you know, what do we do? Shall we go out and rip all the weeds out? And he says, no, you'll, you'll damage the wheat also. And so Jesus gives the interpretation of this. Uh, well, let's read verse 30. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I'll say to the reapers, gather up first the tares, that'd be weeds, bind them in bundles to burn them, gather the wheat into my barn. So at the harvest, the weeds are going to be destroyed, burnt up, and the wheat's going to be stored in the barn. So what's the interpretation? Well, you come down to verses 36 and following, and the, the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The one who sows the weeds is the devil. Um, and um, then it says in verse uh, 40, As therefore the tares, or the weeds, are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be in the end of the world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that cause stumbling and them that do iniquity and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. And there shall be with weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their God, mm -hmm. of their father. So there's that picture of a harvest time at the end when the Lord comes. And there's this division, this separation that's made between the wheat and the tares. You have another one in the Gospel of Mark, just a little bit differently. But remember the one where the gentleman... Uh, goes out and casts seed upon the soil, but he doesn't know how it grows. But the soil produces crop, the blade, then the head. And when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Good. And what's the reference there? Mark five or Mark four, sorry, verses twenty six through twenty nine. Yeah, very good. All right. So that's that's the imagery that's behind um, this passage here. That's kind of reused in this passage in Revelation fourteen. Uh, send forth your sickle, verse 15, and reap. The, the, the hour to reap is come. The harvest of the earth is ripe. Here in Revelation, it's especially focusing upon, uh, I think, the, the judgment, that's this judgment side of it. 
Um, so let's read verses 17 through to the end of the chapter. Yeah, it says, And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. And then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because the grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Yeah. So the way they um, did things in New Testament times, they would harvest the grapes, and they had these big vats, big stone vats, that kind of thing. And there would be two stages, and you would, you would pile all the grapes into the upper vat area, and then guys would get in there barefoot and walk around and tread the grapes, smashing the grapes. So it would squeeze all the juice out and the juice would flow down into the second vat, to the second stage, and then it could be collected. And so that process is kind of a violent, from, from the individual grapes perspective, it's kind of a violent process, getting smashed in the, and of course that's gonna represent the shedding of blood. And this is the judgment of God coming upon um, the enemies of God's people and the blood flows and, and the imagery here is graphic but also impossible in a in a literal way it says that it's going to be as deep as the bridles of horses so picture a horse and his bridle that deep for how far a distance of 200 miles that'd be a lot of blood um, to fill up so that, it, that you've got what why how, how high would a bridle of a horse be? Five and a half feet, something like that? Maybe. Yeah. And uh, for 200 miles, um, you know, so, some people just don't get it that the book of Revelation uses a lot of figurative language, but this is, this is very clearly what's being done here. All right, anything you want to comment on on that? Anything up through chapter, through the rest of chapter 14? No, it's just that we should be anticipating. So now that we've went again from a cycle of god's glory and greatness to judgment we can anticipate anticipate again another cycle of god's glory and greatness to judgment again all right let's quickly get chapter 15 we've got about three minutes a little less than three minutes maybe two and a half let's read through it i'll start in chapter 15 verse 1 i saw another sign in heaven great and marvelous seven angels having seven plagues which are the last for in them is finished the wrath of God. So again, we're building, we're talking about it's coming, it's coming, and now we're given the number seven, and we saw seven uh, seals opened, and when the seventh seal was opened in the first half of the book of Revelation, we saw seven trumpets sound, and then you got the culmination. Once again, it's telling us there's seven things gonna come, and it's seven plagues, and um, so I picked, pick it up in verse 2. I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that come off victorious from the beast, and from his image, and from the number of his name, standing by the sea of glass, having harps of God. So it's harking back to chapter 13, and that conflict between the, the beast and the beast, and the people of God, the one beast making people worship the other beast, and if they didn't, they couldn't buy and sell. They had to have the mark of the beast, but instead God's people resisted and they had the mark of God on their foreheads. And they're gonna be the ones who are victorious. In verse three, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, 
O Lord God, the Almighty, righteous and true are thy ways, thou King of the ages. Who shall not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy, for all the nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy righteous acts have been made manifest. And after these things I saw, and the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened, and there came out from the temple the seven angels that had the seven plagues, arrayed with precious stone, pure and bright, and girt about their breasts with golden girdles. And one of the four living creatures gave unto the seven angels seven bowl, golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and none was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels should be finished. And that introduces what we see in chapter 16, these seven bowls being poured out. We'll get into that next week, Lord willing. What we're going to see is those seven bowls correspond to what is revealed when the seven trumpets are sounding the, the first time you go through all of this, back in uh, chapter 11 of the book of Revelation, chapters chapter 8, 8 through 11. Yeah, 8, yeah. 8 through 11, yeah. Yep. And so we're going through it again, and that's where we'll pick it up next time. Uh, we'll probably have to spend the first 15 minutes of the program having Joe tell us what all we got wrong today. Yes, exactly. <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks a lot, Chase. All right. Thanks.